Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Today we'll be discussing international finance as various crises are dominating headlines. It's a critical topic that has some very strong lessons to be learned, which you won't necessarily hear in the traditional media. But, Ronaldo, first I'd like to start with a correction. At the end of last month's show, a news headline flashed saying that Democrats in Congress were blocking the approval of so-called fast-track authority for the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement. We celebrated this as good news. However, it was very short-lived, and the fast-track authority was granted by Congress after some maneuvering. Is there anything you want to add to that? Well, no, I, I mean, well, little. I'd like to say, first of all, uh, as we said on that show, we think um, that the TPP being negotiated in secret, basically by multinationals, who I think are more capable at their tasks than the president is at keeping a guard on the chicken coop, um, uh, makes it for a dangerous situation. So now what we're going to see, because of that vote, we're going to actually see a TPP presented to the United States Senate. And there'll be nothing secret, because it'll all be out in public, and they'll have a 30 days to vote up or down. Uh, if it is even remotely as bad as some of the people who looked at parts of it think, um, and I, I'm very concerned by some of the things I've heard that are in it, uh, then we would hope and wish it to be rejected by the Senate because it's a treaty and that takes 60 votes out of 100. So uh, it's, 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 not, it's far from a sure thing that the TPP will become actually law. And I think what we all have to do is stay vigilant. When it's finally negotiated in final form and presented to the public, we have to read it very carefully. There's going to be a lot of obfuscation in it. You can assume there's going to be a lot of gobbledygook to wade through. So be sure to turn into this program because we will read it and we will report on it as soon as it becomes public. Excellent. So as I said, there's some international finance stories that are dominating headlines right now. And let's start in Greece since it's the one that is the, uh, apparently at the top of most headlines. What's happening in Greece and how close are we to the, the famed Grexit that we're anticipating? Well, first of all... Um, uh, I want to point out that we've consistently on this show taken the position that, that Grexit would be a good thing for the Greeks. What is Grexit? Grexit means Greek exit. So uh, the, the, the European Union, as we explained in the last show, is comprised of 27 countries that have what are called a common market or common border so that each country within the 27 is free to trade without duties or tariffs with the other 26. Uh, that common market, which has been around for many, many years, developed uh, a second layer on the on the wedding cake, a smaller layer of 17 countries who agreed to combine their currencies into the euro. Now, there's a very good reason to combine into the euro. The concept is really quite good. It's the idea if you go from Greece in the morning uh, to Italy in the afternoon, you have to constantly change. You had to change money as you went through Europe. I, I myself, as my, in, in my 20s, 30s, and 40s, as I traveled throughout Europe, I had to have one pocket full of lira in Italy. I had to have a pocket full of of francs in France, I had to have a pocket full of um, marks in Germany, etc. And so it was extremely inconvenient and frankly expensive to have to maintain all those different currencies and have to keep changing them. I and you always got charged a fee every time you change them. So it was a very big drag on commerce. Plus, 
countries within the European common market would erect trade barriers against other countries so the French wouldn't let the Greeks sell olives and or the Spaniards sell olives and the Spaniards wouldn't let the French sell cheese and it just got kind of crazy. So the, the idea behind the common market was to end internecine European conflict which has been going on for, for thousands of years. A good concept. The idea of a common euro, however, had one major flaw then, which we've talked about many times on this show, and continues to have, and and must be fixed or it can't work. And that is the euro is simply a monetary union, not a fiscal union. So because the European Union doesn't, the monetary union does not have the right to tell a country how to run its budget, it can't tell a country to stay out of debt. So a country like Greece can run up a lot of debt and then be broke, and then the problem becomes, well, how do you keep it afloat? Because you don't want one of the countries to go broke that's using your euros. So to simplify that concept, they share a currency, but they don't share politics. Exactly. So, and, and I reported in a prior show, the heart of this dilemma really goes to who is Germany and what are they about? I think Angela Merkel is a very bright woman, obviously the most powerful woman in the world right now, and I think she's totally blown it. Uh, Germany has taken the position, one mark, one vote. In other words, if they put up the money, they get to tell you how to spend it. Right. Everybody else in Europe has taken the position one man or woman, one vote, on the theory that Germany lost two world wars, and why would they let them buy Europe when they didn't win it with conquest? So this is the central dilemma behind why the euro doesn't have a fiscal uh, mechanism. So we've been reporting on this for several years now, that, that, that the euro has this inherent defect. It has, and then the example I use is, if you think of monetary policy like one blade or tine of a scissor, and you think of fiscal policy as the other blade or tine that so takes the two working in concert to cut paper. And when you break off one, one tine, one, one, one leg of a scissors, you don't have a knife. You have a pair of broken scissors, and that's the euro. It's a broken scissor. So the, the, the problem then becomes with Greece. What does Greece do when it can't change its currency, can't devalue its currency to allow for the fact that its economy is operating at half the power horsepower of the rest of Europe? Well, if they own their own currency, drachma, they would do what Iceland did. So Iceland got smashed, as you recall, in the banking crisis, had a 60% devaluation in the, in the kroner, I think it's called, in Iceland. And from that devaluation, then their exports became more competitive, and Iceland today is a very strong, healthy economy. So the Greeks absolutely need to have control over the drachma if the Germans are going to insist on austerity. Now, let me just touch on why that's so crazy. After World War I, and I think people need to remember this, after World War I, there was a thing called the Weimar Republic. And what the governments of Europe decided, and the U.S. participated in, was they agreed to take and force Germany to repay all of its debts to the Allies for World War I. That crushed the German economy, put it into a depression. German marks became worthless. And that gave rise to a, a, a dictator named Adolf Hitler who rose to power because of the depression created by forcing Germany to repay its debts after World War I. Now, we learned that lesson, and after World War II, we said, oops, we don't want another Hitler. That was really a bad mistake. So we forgave the debt of Germany. We forgave the debt of France. And we did that because we said, if we forgive that debt, we give them a clean slate, then they can build a strong economy from the rubble. That, now that those two countries, Germany and France, don't understand that. By the way, we forgave Italy too. And so Japan the, also, I think. And Japan also, but I'm just staying with Europe. Yeah. So they already know the power of doing that. Well, what the Germans have been doing, and they call it um, austerity, right? Uh, so 
what they're doing is they're, they're, they're taking someone who is wounded. So here's Greece with a bad leg. And instead of providing um, rehabilitation to the bad leg, they're shooting him in the other leg, literally. Uh, for example, Greece, most people don't know this, in 2014, just last year, despite unemployment rates equal to the Great Depression in the United States. So Greece has been suffering since 2007 for eight years. It's been suffering Great Depression levels of unemployment, meaning 25% unemployment currently and 50% of youth unemployment, which will give rise to Nazism yeah. in Germany, in, 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 in Greece, if this continues. So in 2014, with that amount of austerity, with the Germans been forcing on people, which has never worked anywhere, didn't work in England, doesn't work anywhere in the world, has never worked. The Germans forcing austerity, meaning we're going to make you pay your debts, and even though you're broken, we're going to make you broken further, is the equivalent of shooting Greece in the other leg. Well, that approach to austerity is exactly what gave rise to Hitler after World War I, and the Germans should know better. More importantly, there's no way for the Greeks to ever come out if they are forced to take more austerity. And in 2014, as I started to say, the Greeks had a positive, minor, small, but a positive what's called current account balance, meaning the Greek government actually spent a little bit, tiny bit less than it brought in. Hmm. So it actually had a positive surplus, minor. So what the Germans and the French should be doing is, okay, how do we make that surplus bigger? But they're not. Why aren't they? And I'm going to contrast this with China in a minute. Why are the Germans and the French doing this? And I, I want to lay it squarely at the feet of international banking. What's going on in Greece is very simply this. German and French banks want to be paid back, and they're willing to cripple Greece to do it. I think it's horrific. I think it's immoral. It ought to be illegal. If Elizabeth Warren is listening to this radio show, she would agree with me. And more importantly, two of my favorite economists of all time that I have always, always respectfully quoted, Paul Krugman, Joseph Stiglitz, both Nobel Prize winning economists, both agree with everything I'm saying. They've now published on the subject, as have I. So... The three of us as economists absolutely believe that austerity is crazy. And what you do when Greece is weak like this is you help stimulate it. You don't further extract blood from a patient that's dying. In fact, Paul Krugman, in an article in the New York Times just last week, gave an interesting analogy. He said, Germans are acting like medieval doctors who, when they would leech the patient, meaning attach a leech to your body to suck out the bad humors in your blood, and the patient started to die, would apply more leeches. Right. Okay, That's austerity. That's austerity. It's sucking more out when your body's fighting for survival. Okay, now what, let's contrast that, if we can, with, 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 with uh, China. And then I want to come back and end with the Greeks. So China has had a run on its, on its uh, stock market this week. Uh, approximately 35% has already been wiped out. Uh, they suspended trading on initially tens of stocks, then hundreds of stocks, now 1,000-plus stocks. And it's wiping out an enormous amount of wealth. And in, in China, about 80% of the whole stock market is owned by little people, by pensioners and whatnot, because the Chinese government urged everybody to invest in the stock market. Now, the stock market in China is worse than the wild, wild west. There's more corruption, craziness, chicanery on that. I, I would never, and I've told people all along, don't ever buy money in the Chinese stock exchange. You cannot win. It's, the whole thing is crazy. Well, the Chinese public trusted their government. And as a result... They've, they're now losing basically their life savings. The Chinese government, as contrasted with the Germans, however, said, wait a minute, we've got a ton of money we made from the Americans selling goods to Walmart. So what we're going to do is we're going we're to shore up, we're going we're to fund 
our infrastructure to take up the slack in our economy that's not exporting as much. So they started building high-speed railroads, as an example, and within 10 years went from none to the best high-speed rail system in the world. They did the same thing with other infrastructure projects. Well, now what they're doing, and, and it's, I, I was pointing out to, to, I'm going to share this with you, I was pointing this out to Matt before the show. When the New York Times published last night at around midnight, today's issue, it talked about the fact that the Chinese were ordering billions of dollars into the market that would hit the market this morning. So the Chinese government is basically buying up stocks like crazy to flood the market with liquidity. That's the opposite of austerity. So what they, and, and, and by the time we took to the air this morning, that had already worked and the Chinese stock market is now re- re- reviving because everybody now realizes that the Chinese government will not let it fail, which is the exact right thing to do. Why would you punish people who trusted you? The Chinese government was trusted by their own people. Basically, these are middle-class people. They were told to buy stocks. They bought the stocks in a rigged market. The market starts to collapse, and the Chinese government says, wait a minute, we put them in, we better get them out. These are our people. And they're using a tiny fraction, tiny, tiny fraction. I mean, like less than 1% of what they got stored up from what they sold us to save their own country. That's the way you're supposed to, that's stimulating a market the right way. Now, they did one other thing, which we would never have done in this country, which worked. As soon as the market started to collapse, they issued an instruction. No executive of any company whose stock was imperiled was allowed to sell it. I got to tell you, in a country like China, when the government says, don't sell your stock, it ain't like they're going to slap you on the wrist. (laughs) Like you get it up in front of a firing squad. Everybody free, froze. So all of a sudden, the executives couldn't bail out while the public got left holding the bag, which is exactly what did happen in America. So the Chinese did the exact right thing. They stimulated the market. Now, they still have a bubble in that market, the stock market, and now they're going to have to go reform that market slowly. And there will be losses, but they'll be moderate. And there'll be gains on the other side because companies that, that start to develop more traditional reporting, more transparency, uh, more independence from the government, those companies will do well. Now let me go back to Greece. Oh, you have a question? I was going to uh, clarify something on China. You know, what I haven't seen a clear understanding of, and I wonder what your thought is, is what triggered this collapse in the Chinese uh, stock market? Was oh. it the way it was built in the first place? Yeah, rampant speculation. Uh, China, everybody smart that I know that's been watching the situation for the last two or three years said this was going to happen. I mean, I don't care if you're a right wing or a left wing or progressive or conservative. I mean, any economist worth their salt watching this thing go, wait a minute, there's not enough rules. It's like the Wild West. And the thing keeps going up and up and there's nothing holding it up in air at this point. And when you don't have transparency, when companies don't have to honestly report profits, when they can continue to, to build their value because the state says they're more valuable every day, and you're attached to this giant conglomerate called China Inc., and it's, it's, it's a bubble. And that bubble, and by the way, they have the next bubble coming for them, which everybody knows is there, and it's been building for several years, is their real estate bubble. It's already very evident. And they're going to have to spend tens of billions of dollars to shore up their real estate bubble. But they will spend it. And that's what the government's supposed to do. When it has a surplus, which China has the biggest surpluses in the world, it's supposed to reinvest that surplus in things that will take care of their people. And it's worked. I mean, you were reading some uh, statistics just earlier about um, Dao Xiaoping. Right, and how his miracle of economics is really just based on pragmatism, not on economic theory. It's like let's do what's smart. Well, what's smart is that there are there is a legitimate role for government, and that role, as we found in World War II, under the under the uh, Roosevelt administration in this country, called stimulus, and what we've since seen the opposite: austerity fail in every single country it's been tried, including the UK. 
Okay, what we know is the government's role is to stimulate the economy when the private sector has a hiccup, not to inflate it, but to stimulate and put a floor underneath it. You can't do that if one sector is trying to control all the other sectors, and that sector is called banking. So back to my first observation. Why is it that everybody calls this guy Tsipras, who's the prime minister of Greece, who received a 60% uh, vote of confidence from his own people, a left-wing radical? Where's all that coming from? There's nothing left-wing at all about what he's doing. He's trying to get out of a depression. He's trying to get, he has 25% total unemployment, 50% youth unemployment. He's trying to save his country. The man is a national patriot. Now, I hope he's as smart as I think he is. And if he's really smart, as I said on the show last month, he's printing drachmas in the basement right now. Will there be a quick and certain drop in the drachma from parity of the euro? Yeah, it'll be cut in half. But so what? doesn't matter. Now all of a sudden the Greeks will be completely competitive. They'll still be in the common market. And by the way, I want people to remember this. We're not talking about Greeks leaving the common market. They still will have no trade barriers between them and the other 26 countries. It's only about what currency they use. And I believe that the worst challenges they have already sustained, capital controls, freezing the banks for 10 days, okay, that's already happened. They've already got 25% unemployment. So what they're going to go through now is a two to three month readjustment when they start issuing drachmas. But that two to three months will come to an end pretty quickly. And from there on out, I expect the, Greece, the Greek government to grow. And what I predict will happen is, eventually, when the banks have lost their control, of the situation, which is what should happen. And they're trying everything. They're painting this guy like a left-wing radical crazy, which he's not. And they're doing that so they can get control again. And if they don't get control, what will happen? And they know this is what will happen. They will end up with a haircut. So when Greece goes and prints drachmas, rehabilitates its economy, within two years, mark my words, within two years, there'll be a debt renegotiation of Greece. And that what the Greeks will do is will give their debtors a haircut like they should, like happens in every other bankruptcy, in every other kind of company and situation. And once that haircut's been administered, they'll get half, 50 cents on a dollar, whatever they get, 35 cents a dollar. And they shouldn't have lent the money in the first place. Why would we guarantee the banks not only would they get their money back, but they would get interest at an exorbitant rate of, in some cases, 18% interest is what they're paying. Jeez. Okay, so why would we do that for the banks? The answer is they're gone to, that's why Elizabeth Warren would agree with me. The banks have become too powerful, they're controlling Germany, and through Germany, they try to control Europe. And what's really, here's the, in my last statement, I know I've been going on too long, but here's my last statement about the crisis. <laughs> it's this. They so badly played their hand, the Germans, and Angela Merkel, I believe they put the European Union in jeopardy. I know they're saying the exact opposite, but I think they now have got a serious problem. Because what they've done, instead of rehabilitating their weakest sister, they have tried to crush it, and they're not going to succeed. Greece will rise again. And when it does... It's going to sow an incredible question mark in the middle of the European Union, which is like, wait a minute, what are we doing and how are we doing it? I hope and predict there will be um, a re-examination of the fundamental relationship of the German mark to the rest of the European currents, European economies. Having said that, I have one other plug I want to put in, and I'm done. Our fellow Bernard Lettier has written an excellent article recently, in the last couple of days, called The False Greek Dilemma in which he correctly, in my mind, he's interviewed by a friend of the Academy's, Faye Cox, and in that article, he correctly says that the optimum solution to the Greek debt crisis would be to create a parallel currency, a neo-drachma, which we've argued for in the show years ago, and euros. And he, he has an elegant, thoughtful way that you could run a parallel two-currency country and resolve this without a crisis. I think he's right theoretically, 
love the elegance of the solution. Don't think it's got a snowball's chance in hell because of Angela Merkel overplaying her hands and because the banks are so greedy they're willing to crush more Greeks in order to get their last pound of flesh. And I think, therefore, it won't, what Bernard's recommending, which is incredibly smart, won't happen. If anybody wants a copy of Bernard's article, as interviewed by Faye Cox, uh, send a note to the Academy, and we'll be glad to send it to you. So let's go back to one point that you made there, because there's a lot of them. But I want to I focus on the one you talked about, about the international financial press calling the, uh, the prime minister of Greece, Alexis Tsipras, a far-left radical, and his Soyuza party, a far-left radical party. Because I think that that's really important. You know, what that indicates is that they're basically trying to pigeonhole him as some kind of uh, uh, rebellion as, as opposed to uh, a pragmatist. What, what's your thought on that? Well, it's not only a rebellion. What they're trying to say is that he's irresponsible. He's the closest thing to a pirate. I mean, remember, until two weeks ago, the, the press in this country called Bernie Sanders, correctly so, a left-wing socialist, as if that was supposed to keep you from going to tear him. So what is left-wing socialism as Bernie Sanders would define it? It's saying the banks have too much power. It's saying that no bank should be too big to fail. It's saying, as a, um, I'm going to talk about Elizabeth Warren later in the show, uh, it's saying that um, the, the, the gap between rich and poor has to close, not get larger. He's saying we need a, a progressive tax system, which we haven't had since the 70s. He's saying that we need to reinvest in our in- infrastructure. Now, I want my listeners to ask themselves, of all the things I just listed that he's saying, go back and listen to the tape again. How many of those do you disagree with? The right. answer is none. Most of the listeners of the show would agree with every one of those. Now, why did they call him a left-wing, wild-eyed socialist? Because it was a way to keep him from being heard. The banks have tremendous control in this country, as Elizabeth Warren knows. And internationally, apparently. And apparently internationally. And, US, and yeah. so what they're doing this, this, with this, this ad hominem, meaning the attack of a man, the ad hominem attack of Cyprus as a wild-eyed left-wing radical is attempted to discredit him. First, they try to discredit him with his own people. Didn't work, apparently. So now they're trying to discredit him on the international scene. That won't work. And at the end of the day, he's got more cards than they do because the, the fundamental mistake the Europeans are making is you never threaten somebody who has nothing to lose. And if you've been in a depression for eight years at 50% youth unemployment, 25% regular unemployment, you've got nothing to lose. You have got to solve that problem or the skinheads will take over your country. Right. Well, they were trying to for a while there in Greece. There was a real rise of the neo-Nazi party. Correct. And I think that the, the left wing actually won. It's you know, the choice between far left and far right. Any reasonable person is going to choose far left because at least they're not... Out and, exterminating, and, and I wouldn't even call Cyprus far left. No, I don't think so either. I don't think he's. I don't. I think he's very centrist, actually. So the idea of the international press, as recently as this morning, calling him a wild-eyed leftist radical crazy, I think is height of irresponsibility. It's just one more example of how the media has been co-opted, and it's time for people to go on the internet, and start making choices for themselves, and hopefully sharing programs like this. Yeah, excellent. So. To wrap that up, essentially, what you're seeing from Greece and what you're seeing from China, China, you don't think is going to, it doesn't have a chance of any kind of default. You think they'll be back on their feet relatively quickly. Is They're on it? their feet now. As soon as they made the announcement, we'll pump whatever money it takes in the stock market to keep from collapsing, which is what you should say if you're the government. Well, problem solved. It's the, the run is over. Now, it, will it take a long time to fix the market? Yes, it'll take years because it was set up in a crummy fashion. And the, the Chinese didn't understand what capitalism was. They didn't understand how to do stock markets. So they thought you could do stock markets without doing transparency. So we've learned in this country that our market doesn't work well when the SEC is off duty. 
Security and Exchange Commission, which, by the way, it's been off duty for years now. Mm-hmm. So, so we've learned that they don't work as well when we don't have a really good SEC. You know, you've got to have somebody watching the chicken coop or the fox gets in and eats the chickens. And the fox, in this case, is greed and avarice. So the Chinese set it up thinking, oh, well, they didn't need a chicken coop guard because, you know, everybody's in a, in a socialist state, everybody's nice to each other. No, no, greed is universal. So they've got a massive cleanup job to do, just like they do in the real estate bubble. But at the end of the day, they're doing exactly what the government's supposed to do. They're stimulating that part. They're shoring up that part that's weak so they buy the time to go fix it. They're reestablishing which, confidence, right? I mean, exactly. that's the bottom line in stock market. And they're keeping their people from being crushed by debt. Right. I mean, if you were a pensioner and you saw 50% of your money wiped out overnight, as we did in this country, 46%, the Chinese said, we won't let that happen to our people. We're not going to let them starve in time, five, 10 years. So we're going to fix this. And even if we don't get them back 100% of what they lost, we'll get them back a whole chunk. So they might not be able to restore the confidence in the market to the point where it's at the levels where people lost as much as they recoup what they lost, but they'll bring a whole lot back. And, and you know what? I don't know what the stock market in China's worth. Nobody does. The truth is we don't know what it's worth because we, don't, we can't see it. We can't see into it. It's not transparent. And when the Chinese change that, which they're going to be having to do, then they'll have a legitimate stock market. So they'll either, here's my prediction. They'll either fix it by setting up a more modern system with transparency, regulation, and et cetera, which I think is consistent with um, the premier's current anti-corruption campaign. Or they'll go, you know what? This doesn't work for Chinese. And they'll pay everybody off and close it down because they can pay everybody off and close it down if they want. It's an interesting question, right? Because Chinese people have traded a lot of political freedom for their economic miracle that they've had. And the, the deal is that essentially we'll bring you out of poverty if you don't demand the right to vote and make right. decisions. Uh, so, But that relationship will ma- be maintained, and that's one of the reasons they had to do this bailout also. Right? Exactly right. So what happened in China is the government has gotten the people to say, look, in terms of – they brought 625 million, maybe 750 million people out of abject poverty, according to international statistics. And in return for that rise from poverty – the middle class was created, and they said, okay, we'll let you run the country any way you want, including you can shoot people if you like it. But, but you know, as long as you run the country and we keep doing better every day. Well, this run on the stock market so threatened their control of the Central Committee that they said, wait a minute, we could have serious challenges to the Communist Party if we let people get wiped out. That was their motive. don't think it's necessarily a great motive, but it was the motive that worked. And as a result, they said, we're not going to get people crushed. We're not going to let that happen. And we should do that in America. Well, that's frankly. what I was going to say. Yeah, I think that there's there's a real uh, – what you're seeing, I think, with the, with the incredible crowds Bernie Sanders is pulling and the kind of shift in consciousness in the United States is, I think, a result of that massive loss of wealth when the last collapse happened and the wiping out of the middle class and the continued denigration of the middle class. Uh, people in America don't believe the way they did before seeing that happen – uh, in the infallibility of the of the stock market and of capitalism anymore, so I think that that's why, you know, that that relationship has been broken here for a while. I'd say since the seventies or eighties. Um, so it's interesting to see China kind of learning that lesson and, and staying ahead of that in, in their own country. You know, there's an interesting question here. And you brought up the U.S. Interesting question, Matt. So that we're now, as of this morning, uh, this, this this broadcast is being recorded on July 9th. Um, as of this morning, the Confederate flag is coming down in South Carolina and by an overwhelming margin, I think with five votes in favor of keeping it up in the Assembly and only three in the Senate. And, and what I'm going to be watching for 
is this the beginning finally of the New South? In other words, is it finally the recognition that no matter how much they try to block black voters, which, as you know, they're currently doing all over the South, no matter how much they try to create a two-tiered economic system, which they're doing all over the South, they're going to have to real. They, they have to acknowledge that that the, the, the typical right-wing Republican conservative white person voter is a smaller and smaller minority. So they got to start thinking about Latinos. They got to start thinking about blacks. They got to start thinking about Asians. And I think that Nikki Haley, who was elected as a very right-wing governor of South Carolina, led the charge on behalf of the Republican Party, which controls both houses of the legislature in South Carolina that she realized, oh my God, a new, a new day has been, is dawned because of these nine people being murdered, basically, with the symbol being a Confederate flag. That's right. I think that it, what I'm hoping, Matt, is I'm hoping that that's not an odd example that will be lost in history and turns out to be sui generis, as they say in law, one of a kind. What I'm hoping is a, it is the dawning of a new understanding of how, in a democracy, we're all here for each other or we're not here for anybody. And in fact, you can't let the rich keep getting richer at the rate we've been doing it since the 70s and not create massive social disruption and economic collapse. So if you really want to keep your yacht in your private plane, you better go along with what Goldman Sachs' chairman is saying, which is we've got to close this gap between rich and poor. It's the number one issue in America. By the way, the number one issue for Bernie Sanders. So I believe that, although I don't think Bernie's going to be the, the nominee for the Democratic Party, I believe everything he's articulating is helping to bring into clear focus there's nothing wild-eyed, socialist, or liberally weird about what he's saying. What he's saying is common sense. Let's have better schools. Why do we invest more in prisons than in schools? Did you see that in the U.S. now, in the last two months, there's now a Republican and a Democratic agreement that we've built too many prisons and we've hobbled our education system as a result. So we're paying way, way too much for prisons and way too little for education. Well, that's the beginning of a really smart change of, of, of pace. Yeah. And, and I think that's going to last, by the way. Yeah. Um, so I, I think this could this, this Confederate flag issue could be the beginning of something really good. Can I segue into Elizabeth? Well, let me just comment on that because it's interesting. You know, these symbols and flags are such a, a great prototype or archetype of a symbol, right? That flag is coming down this week, and that's a, that's a huge victory for, and it, it demonstrates a change in consciousness. The other one that was recent that we haven't talked about was the Supreme Court Court's ruling on gay marriage, which was another example of a rule that is being changed and is now established law by conservative justice Anthony Kennedy that gay people are entitled to the same rights as straight people, and that's going to be happening throughout the South. So I think that there's progress being forced by tragedy and by Supreme Court ruling to well, actually Supreme, shift the, the way they work. If the Supreme Court could do anything to slow down the change, they would. That's If you don't believe me, read the opinions of Antonin Scalia. Well, yeah. some of them, yeah. But I, I think Kennedy's coming around is really interesting. No, no he's actually been there all along. Uh, Kennedy has been there all along on this issue, pretty much. Right. His, his son's coming out as gay was one of the right. big tipping points for him. That's yeah. my point. Yeah. So, so I don't think the court's changed. I think that on this issue, and this is why I think the issue of gay rights is not as potent potentially as the issue on um, the flag mm-hmm. um, and, uh, so, so so the issue on the flag just to distinguish them this is great for cocktail chatter folks if you want to be have fun at cocktail parties most people don't realize but the confederate flag never flew over confederate battlefield that I'm aware of it was adopted after the civil war 
I don't think there's one state that fought under that flag, which is kind of interesting, yeah, because they all fought under their own state flags. That was part of the deal, states' rights. But anyway, double-check that, but I think that's true. Um, but but what, what, what the Confederate flag became was a symbol of the resistance to the federal government. So in a country where we fought a, 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 the most brutal war in our history, the Civil War, the losing side said, forget like hell. And that's what the Confederate flag was about. We want to preserve what we had, and that includes slavery. So the Confederate flag wasn't a way to recall your noble pre-slavery Jamestown colony history right. of 1640. It was, Absolutely. it was about slavery. And, so, and it was to fly in the face. So it, was, it was intentionally there. So like, we are going to rise again. That's what the Confederate flag said. We will rise again. And when we rise... Slavery would come back with it. Now, you contrast that decision by an overwhelming Republican majority in both the Senate and the House and an overwhelming Republican state, South Carolina, and you say, oh, that's a sea change in politics. The people have changed their mind, and I think that's huge. Now, on the gay rights issue, why I contrast it, is because I don't think you can count on Kennedy to be a reasonable justice. I don't think he's going to become liberal. I I think the coming out of his son in that one unique Fortunate situation, and there's a couple other fortunate situations. We are fortunate that because so many gay people stayed in the closet for so long and amassed so much power in society, whether it was in the entertainment industry, finance, you name it, they they were able to mount an effort across this country in rapid fashion. I, I find the change that occurred at the legislatures in the states frankly, more stunning than what yeah. one guy Kennedy did because of his son. No, I agree. And I, and I, and I, have, I was making more of a broad point about the public opinion, actually, also on this issue, which is why... That I, I agree with. I think that that, you know, it's actually switched. Just since 2009, I'm looking at it right now, uh, 54% opposed uh, gay marriage in 2009. And today, 57% favor it. That's right. So it's just a total reversal in just those six years. And to me, that's the corollary to the flag coming down. Yeah, the, the Justice Kennedy thing is anomaly. And, sure. and, and the reason I say that is because, folks, do not believe that there is a conservative wing to the court and a liberal wing to the court. There are four really good jurists on the court. There are four complete yahoos. <laughs> and there's one guy who swings back and forth because he doesn't. And by the way, who would, remember what Kennedy was. Another more cocktail, cocktail story. He was the third choice of President Reagan. The first choice was Bork. Bork. Yeah. Right? The second choice was Fortis, I believe. I don't remember. And the third choice was Kennedy, because neither one of those two could get through. So you, you had, and, and with all due respect to Justice Kennedy, and, and he, he's from my state, California, my adopted state. I got to tell you, he's just not that great a jurist. And the way you rate jurists is as much by what they write and the quality, will what they write stand the test of time? Because it reveals their thinking process. Sotomayor is a very bright woman. Ruth Ginsburg, really bright. Bayer, really bright, really capable. I mean, Bayer's dissent recently... Breyer? Breyer's yeah. dissent was, was, was really um, thoughtful. On, on, on He just wrote a dissent on the death penalty, mm-hmm. where the court went for kill him when you find him, basically. And use whatever method you want, yeah. basically. Yeah, and, and what he pointed out uh, in his dissent, so Breyer, is what a good judge should do is he quoted a study which demonstrated that the vast majority of killing of people, being the death penalty was happening in, in a very tiny number of counties in the country, like five out of a thousand. Hmm. And, and the biggest county is down in Louisiana. I think it's called Cabot County. And there they got a guy who believes that everybody should die, and he thinks it's pure revenge, and he thinks revenge is a good thing. He thinks society should kill more people. Now, 
That's crazy. That's just crazy talk, particularly when the, what do you call it, Justice Project has demonstrated conclusively, Innocence Project, Innocence Project has con- concluded unequivocally that lots of people ended up on death row who never committed the crime. And have been executed. And lots have been executed. Yeah. And with DNA, we now know that. And we also know that if you're black, you got a much higher percentage of being arrested, convicted, and executed than if you're white. We also know that the quality of justice in this country is based on the quality of the lawyer you can afford, not the quality of the courts. That's got to change. That's got to change. Anyway, I think that uh, my segue uh, from this sea change that occurred at the people level in the gay rights issue, the sea change that's occurring with that flag, which I hope is a broader sea change on basically voting rights and things of the sort, is also going on now as a result of, uh, what, uh, two or three days ago, maybe last Friday or Monday of this week, Elizabeth Warren introduced a bill, I love this, co-authored, co-sponsored by John McCain, not exactly the most stable centrist in the party, of his own party, Maria Cantwell, one of the leaders of the Democratic Party, Angus King, who's an independent, I believe, and they've now introduced what they call the 21st Century Glass-Steagall Act, which basically is going to reduce taxpayers' risk in the financial system and decrease the likelihood of future financial crises. She sent out an email on July 8th asking people to sign and show their support, which I've done. I just want to share with people. Glass-Steagall was an act we passed after the Great Depression because we saw that the central thing that happened to the banks was they took the money in as deposits and they gambled with it. And then we had to bail them up. The same thing happened in 2008. The banks forced us to pay them back for their gambling debts, never went to jail, never were punished, and basically, we lent them the money to pay us back with, which is kind of crazy. Right. So the, the Glass-Steagall Act prevented banks from gambling with the money that w- was deposited by regular people. Yeah. It was passed in 1933, four years after the Wall Street crash. And it was because we wanted to also insure those deposits against bank failure so that people could have confidence in the banking sector after yeah. the Great Depression. Yeah. The idea is simple. If banks want access to government-provided deposit insurance, they should be limited to borrowing to boring banking. Not boring banking. Boring banking, not right. gambling. Like lending. <laughs> like lending to organizations that need it, companies. Not just speculation and creating right. Do you know what's one of the fastest growing, like little um, mini boomlet industries right now in America? Bank lending by non banks. Yeah, like peer to peer lending? Well, no, uh, uh, companies that basically raise capital and then lend it out, but not as a bank. They lend it out to small businesses, typically loans of a couple million or less. Small businesses that can't get bank loans. Because why would you, if you're a bank, loan money to a real business when you can take the money from the federal government, be guaranteed a return that's much higher, and have no risk? So the whole point of banking, which is that you deposit money, I borrow money, and there's some risk, but you're allowed to make a profit, so that covers your losses. Uh, some of you may know I played a real central role in helping to launch a bank uh, 10, 11 years ago called the Ohio Community Bank. And the whole idea behind the bank was we could see this whole crisis coming and we want to have a bank that will lend to us. And we know it's not going to do a 100% perfect job, but if we charge fair rates, when we do make a mistake, we'll be able to pay for them and we'll keep moving on. And that little bank now has grown to having four outlets. So it's the Santa Barbara, Ventura, Ohio, the original one, and um, Santa Paula. Well, that kind of community banking, as it's called, was one response to banks refusing to lend at a community level to the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. There's another response, which is this new fast-rising section of basically the stock world of companies that are doing lending, which banks should be doing in a couple million dollars and under. Um, we know 
that there's a cancer on the land called payday lending, mm-hmm. which is unregulated and is violates every concept we used to have of what's called usury. Right. Okay, why is that happening? Because a small person who's got a salary has to pay 15, 18, 20 percent interest to borrow 500 or 1,000 bucks against next month's paycheck. Well, why can't they get a revolving loan for 1,000 or 2,000 at 8 percent? A bank annual, not 15 yeah. percent a month. Yeah, and why not 8 percent annual like a company gets a loan? Right. And by the way, will all of them pay back? No, but what we know from the Grameen Bank is that if you lend $1,500 or less to the poorest people in your, in your, in your society who have absolutely no credit at all, 99 percent of the time, they'll pay it back. That's pretty good. Now, we learned that from the Grameen Bank. It's a two, three billion dollar institution now in Pakistan, of all places. No, in um, Bangladesh and Pakistan. I think. In fact, now they're in America. So you can start here. So, I, what I want to make clear is lending's appropriate. What the banks have been doing is not lending. It's been gambling with our money, and we've been lending them the money to gamble with, and we've been guaranteeing their losses. That's got to stop. It's got to stop now. I want to call your attention to this. This new uh, 21st Century Glass-Steagall Act that Elizabeth Warren has introduced with John McCain, Maria Cantwell, and Angus King as co-sponsors. And please get behind and support it. It's in your self-interest to do so. So it's interesting because you know this show, we talk about, a lot about the intersection between finance and politics. Um, and I want to I focus on a couple more countries that we, we wanted to touch on. Uh, but before we do that, I think that the question is that, that's kind of coming out of this, Ronaldo, is... Why is it important to understand these capital flows and these massive financial uh, relationships that are always changing and always making headlines? I mean, I feel like the average U.S. consumer understands politics, but may not understand essentially the power uh, of these institutions. Can you comment on basically the the way finance and politics interact? Yeah, well, first of all, um, I I wish you were right. I'm not sure I can share your optimism that uh, the American public understands politics. Uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. I think the American public has surrendered its intelligence on the altar of media. So it, it listens to what it's told very uncritically. And that's why you see people constantly voting against their own self-interest in this country. So right now, uh, the control of the media is so persuasive, pervasive that people in this country have been willing to accept a massive reallocation of wealth from the middle class to the rich. Since the 70s, the gap that has been spreading, this country has accepted that the poor in this country, defined as the minimum wage, have been slammed harder than any category of society. Uh, They've accepted in this country, which I do not, that somebody who works a 40-hour week should be living below the poverty line. There's no job that should pay you so little. They've accepted the complete falsehood that if people were to pay higher minimum wage, it would cost too much and businesses would go broke and they'd leave town. If you look at the cities where minimum wage has been raised the highest, the quickest, Seattle, $15. Booming economy. Booming economy. Um, California and and Los Angeles is about to adopt it. So... It's a complete falsehood. It's like this crazy thing about austerity that doesn't ever work, and instead we should be stimulating and didn't stimulate enough. And so because we didn't stimulate enough, we've been, we've been dragging this economy through the mud for much longer than we should have. Now, we finally have achieved, again, a 5% unemployment rate, which is very close, as I said last time, to structural unemployment. I mean, you might be able to chop another point off. That's about it. 
So it's crawled back all these years. It's taken us basically eight years to crawl back when we could have gone back in two. And instead of having the GDP where it is today, it could be about 30 to 40% higher if we'd have stimulated rather than done austerity. So why do people let that happen? Well, number one, they don't understand politics. They don't understand that the way the laws get written is by very rich people hiring platoons of lawyers and platoons of lobbyists that, that camp uh, last year, I believe, in the United States, over twice as much money was spent on lobbyists to influence legislature than the entire cost of the U.S. government's legislative system, more than twice. So, meaning the private sector is spending $2 for every dollar the public spends on its own government. Yeah. So what's happening is you've got a government that's, that's bought and paid for. So, so you have these, and, and, and you get bills and laws that are so complex that people can't understand and then you get people being told falsely by the news that, that it's one thing when it's completely another. And, and i got to tell you, I'm grateful to Donald Trump because his bombastic uh, attempts to gain more notoriety is finally unmasking the crudity of some of these positions. So, for example, the anti-immigration position, which makes no sense at all in a country built by immigrants that we don't provide a pathway to citizenship in the country that was built by immigrants, I don't get it at all. That, that we don't make it possible for someone to come as a scholar to one of our better universities and then we force them to leave and take that knowledge to another country. We're training basically all of our competitors. That's crazy. So <clears throat> Trump is unmasking how stupid that is. Mm-hmm. The only way you can justify that policy is if you believe like Donald Trump that they're all murderers, rapists, and criminals. And that the Mexican government is sending them here. I mean, if you believe that, you really need to have your head changed, right? Now, thankfully, Trump is saying it, so it makes it that crystal clear. It's that stupid a position. Even Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, the, the right-wing Republican Party is going, this is crazy talk. Right. Okay. Now, what's happening is it will be like the Confederate flag if we're lucky. Trump will have staked out the position of those five guys in the, in the House and the three in the Senate who go, it's my heritage. Slavery's part of my heritage and I'm proud of it. Well, if you're proud of slavery, you want to rethink it. Now, let's go to the question you're really asking. What about the, the monetary flows? In the foreword to the book I was instrumental in helping Bernard Letier with that we presented, the World Business Academy presented to the Club of Rome called Money and Sustainability, um, the missing link. In there, in that forward, I was asked to write a letter explaining why we had undertaken this project. And in it, I started my, my explanation by saying, war is too important to be left to generals, as the old adage goes. Likewise, monetary policy is too important to be left to monetary theorists. The brilliance of this report is that it captures and maps with crystal clarity the fundamental connection between climate change the cyclical boom and bust of our current monetary system, the fragility of the global economy, the political instability of most of the Western democracies, and the unsustainable overhang over it all of vast pools of international capital in the form of gambling receipts, which we euphemistically call derivatives. Now, I wrote that in, uh, what year is this? I wrote that, 2012. And I would, and by the way, it's, it's only a page long. If people want it, we can put it on our website. What I wrote in that letter to the Club of Rome and the leadership of the European Union is more true today than when I wrote it. It turned out to be prophetic. What are these massive pools of international capital I'm referring to? And why do they matter was your question. What you have is a rogue system 
where the money, and I want you to think of money like the blood in your body. Monetary influence over the body politic is identical to blood in the body human. So it's what courses through your veins. It's how you get the oxygen from one part of the system, your heart, to your fingertips. So when somebody captures that circulatory system and says, I'm going to make it work for me, no matter if it kills the host, the body politic, that level of greed, I can get mine even if it kills you eventually, uh, that level of greed is what's at work in the international monetary system. And the capital flows that you referred to, which is only one tiny part of it, are basically the way you keep track of who's rigging the game, how and why. And if you know the game is rigged and you understand capital markets theory, then what you do is you're able, you're able to take and understand the implications of some massive movement. So the implications I gave you this morning of the Greek exit, the principal beneficiaries of, crash, of, of, of pushing Greeks into the ground would be the banks, even though ultimately it will crush Greece. Okay. Well, where do they get all that power from? They get that power because they invest massive amounts of money to get the politicians they want elected who then listen to them and think, well, they must know because they're, they're bankers. They must know. And what they've lost track of is these bankers are every bit as venal and greedy as the trust that Teddy Roosevelt busted back in the early 1900s. These are, it's time to do some trust busting. That's what Bernie Sanders is saying. In effect, that's what Greece is saying. And that's what Angela Merkel's getting wrong. And that she would do it knowing her country gave rise to Hitler when somebody did it to her, I find stunning. That shows you how much power the banks have. And the capital flows they trigger can bring something like a country, Greece, to its knees. So if the international banking system wanted Greece to get up off the ground, it could do it real easily. The dual-tier um, monetary system, parallel currency that Bernard has written so eloquently of, would work. Printing drachmas would work if you assisted them with a transition. Rehabilitating their banking system with a stimulative approach would get them all paid back. But they're so greedy. They're so afraid that if Greece gets out of their control, because they control the European Union, clearly. If Greece gets out of their control, uh-oh, we better crush them because we don't want anybody else to get out of control. So what's really going on is the banks are trying to prove they're more powerful than a country and find more powerful than Europe. And they're wrong. And the Greeks are calling them, and I'm grateful the Greeks are calling them on it. Um, Venezuela, as an example, take a different country, totally different situation. The Venezuelan um, Bolivar has dropped 46% roughly since the beginning of this year. Should drop. It's a country in free fall. There's nothing courageous or smart about what they're doing in Venezuela. It's completely, it's like it's letting lunatics run the asylum and it's the largest oil reserves, some of the largest oil reserves in the world in this country is the complete basket case. And their government is basically becoming more and more totalitarian by the day. And eventually will get thrown out one way, either violently or non-violently. That's very different from Greece. 60% of the Greek people just said, we can't take any more austerity. We've done it for eight years. It's killing us. We're in a depression. We want to come out of the depression. Our depression in the United States only lasted from 1929 until about 1940. Well, some people say it ended in World War, World War II, 1939-40, uh, because we started building war material for Europe, for, for England. Um, there was a minor little relief from it in the mid-30s when we created... Glass-Steagall Act, which I've already referred to, the Civil Conservation Corps, which was hiring people to go to work, building incredible stuff that we still use to this day. 
um, the uh, the um, gosh, I'm trying to think of all. There was four different major WPA, WPA administration. Pardon me, TVA, and the TVA. So all of those today are the infrastructure that runs the country that we haven't replaced since the 30s, <laughs> and gave us a huge relief from the depression. Right. Even that was not enough because they forced Roosevelt to stop. So in 1936-37, we started slinking, slipping back down, but we never went back into depression. And as a result, when 39 came along, we started building more material for, for the British. We were in a position to not only win a war, we were in a position to keep our economy sailing from then until the present day. Hmm. Excellent. Do you want to comment on Puerto Rico before we wrap up? I think the suggestion that Bernard Letier uh, is suggesting for Puerto Rico would actually work uh, for, for Greece would actually work for Puerto Rico as well. So Puerto Rico, if you haven't been following it, folks, is in default. There's no way it can pay its debts. It has a terrible problem. It has U.S. currency, so it can't create a new currency. It can't print a drachma. It's not allowed. It's uh, historically been a very corrupt government on all levels, including financial corruption. Uh, it's in a limbo world. It's not a state, and it's because it's a territory. So it votes and it doesn't vote. It, 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 it's, it's clearly a basket case. Um, the U.S. government, unlike the Greek government, must keep its banks open, so we will do so. But the way we will keep those banks open will be with a tremendous amount of pain uh, for Puerto Rico as a, as a, as a nation. And um, apart from what Bernard is suggesting, I don't know how Puerto Rico gets out of this mess, particularly given the politics of austerity in this country. So if I were running the country, so to speak, or if, if Krugman was running it or Stiglitz was running it, we'd say, well, let's fix Puerto Rico the right way. Let's go in there and clean up the politics Let's stimulate the economy, and let's restructure the debt. That's what any smart person would do. That's common sense. So with all these things floating around, and with the uh, the other thing I want you to touch on is the price of oil, but in the context of what, what, what do you see the doomsday clock? Uh, are we going to change it at all, or is it staying exactly where it was? No, I think it's, it's, it's staying where it was because uh, what the Chinese did, I think that by far the bigger economic story of the last week has been this, what will the Chinese do in response to the collapse of the stock market, which did collapse. Um, it clearly did all the right things. They're doing the right things. So that's no longer on the table, and that's a much bigger story than Greece. Yeah. Um, you don't think there'll be a contagion from Greece? No, exit? Not, no, not initially. No, like I said, within two years they'll regret it. Today, there's a thing, an expression called they ring-fenced it. What they did is they put a fence around it so that it couldn't infect. And if you look at the uh, bond ratings of Portugal, Spain, Italy, Ireland... Uh, what you see is that they're not adversely affect, being affected. Uh, the, the, even the European-denominated, Euro-denominated bonds are not being that adversely affected. I mean, you know, 50, 100 basis points one way or the other, but nothing major. And so I think that, um, that what will happen is there, the, there'll be a big collective sigh of relief when it's over. The Greeks will be in a serious free fall for a couple, three months till they get their footing under the new drachma. And the rest of the Europeans will pledge to keep each other afloat and um, then they'll start watching to see what happens next. And uh, if it goes like I think it uh, will, which means within two years Greece will be renegotiating its debt to some reasonable level, um, there may be a readjustment even in the European uh, political system. Yeah. In fact, that's what the Financial Times is suggesting might occur, that Angela Merkel so overplayed her hand, she might lose the control Germany currently has over the European Union. Oh. And then anything you want to mention on crude oil prices? Yeah, I'm delighted. <laughs> delighted. Uh, you know, we, I said they'd stay down. They stayed down. Uh, I, when I uh, looked 
this morning at 8 a.m. it was $51 a barrel. I hear it's up a couple bucks today, it might be 53. But as you know, I've said all along, 65 is the absolute ceiling. Uh, I said they'll do everything they can to get it up to 55. They're trying and they're not succeeding. Uh, I think it's fabulous that um, that the uh, uh, oil industry has met its match. Just economics and, the, first of all, that renewables are working so well. I mean, people cannot escape the fact that 90% is the cost of what energy has dropped using renewables from photovoltaic, 75% drop in expense when you make it from wind, and oil's finally getting challenged. And so big oil, which has controlled our government since the trust busting, well, since Standard Oil uh, was created in the 1880s, has finally met its match in the markets. And uh, I continue to believe that if you own oil stocks, you should sell them. They're not going up. They're going to go sideways at best, and then they will go down forevermore. So they're not coming back because they have, you should pardon the expression, too much water on their balance sheet. They will never recover all those assets under the ground because there won't be a market to economically pay for it. And those assets can't be pumped and sold. Fracked oil can be done economically probably as good as $65 a barrel. Um, new tar sands projects will not get started. Old ones will get milked out. Uh, and you're going to see a continuing decrease in global oil demand, just like you're seeing a continuing decrease in coal demand right Excellent. Well, with that, I'd like to invite our listeners to check in with us at worldbusiness.org and write into us if you have questions or want to respond to anything you heard today at info at worldbusiness.org. Ronaldo, thanks again. Um, do we have one more minute? Sure. Do you want to add something? One last thing. We have, look in your email, folks. Oh, yeah. We have a surprise that you're going to love. Uh, I think, I hope, I'm trusting my friend Matt here to my left. We'll pull this off by within two weeks. You'll be getting an email offering you to participate for free in a beta test of one of the most novel, wonderful, heartwarming, pleasant surprises you, will, you won't believe it. We're going to give you a way to get good news in your inbox every day. Real good news. News about stuff that's working every day to make your life and mine better. So keep your eyes yeah, peeled. Yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yep. With Thanks, that, everyone. Yeah, thank you, Ronaldo.